Joining us today, we have Pro Professor Sarath Ranganathan, and you are highly decorated in many areas of pediatric pulmonary disease and respiratory physiology. I'll ask you to explain that and get that down to my level in a minute, but thanks for joining us, first of all. Oh, you're most welcome, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for getting my name pretty much. Oh, how would it, how pretty much right? What, how should I have said it? Oh, no one says it right. Only my mother's in a certain way. No one's ever replicated that through my how, life. How would, your mother, how would your mother say it? She usually says, hey, you. <laughs> As in, hey, you. <laughs> you did pretty well with Sarath. Sarath. Mm -hmm. Great. You're a chronic overachiever, Sarath. But looking at your, your bio, so it's very impressive. Tell us a little bit about what is clinical respiratory physiology and early lung disease. Why narrow that down for the common folk like myself? I'm going to teach everyone a little bit about how the lung develops, because it's interesting. When you're born, your lung isn't fully formed. The airways are fully formed, but the actual lungs where the oxygen goes in and out, most of that develops in the first few years of life. And it's really critical that growth that happens in the first few years of life is very efficient. And the way the lung changes during that time actually affects how you breathe. And the study of that is respiratory physiology. Being a pediatrician, I'm assuming the majority of your work is all focused on early childhood. Yes, I, I did a PhD on it, on early childhood and how the lung works in various conditions and also in health. But the really interesting thing is that we've since discovered that what happens in those first few years of life probably sets you up for your whole of your life. So that early period of life is really critical. You're a clinician and a researcher. So uh, for folks who don't know, that means you, you have, do you have a private practice or do you work in the public system? And then you're also a researcher for a large uh, children's pediatric research institute. Yeah, that's pretty common. So a, a clinician, so looking after patients and then a clinician scientist, which means when we see patients and we think, well, why are we using this treatment? Or could that treatment be better? Or what's going on here? Is this the right way to do things? You ask those questions and then along with your teams of researchers, try and find an answer to improve the care or improve the treatment for those individuals. And do you have a preference seeing patients doing the research or do you find that then diagram of seeing patients and doing the research really gives you a, a well-rounded and a job that's, that's more enjoyable than doing just one of them. I get bored really quickly. I don't get bored of people. So I still think that's my preferred activity, but when you're treating someone, you're making a difference to one individual or one family at a time. And often what's led to them being ill or something that's led to the certain type of treatment is determined by a system or the approach we use. So the research enables you to enhance the care for that individual, but also for everyone that follows on. So that it's a real privilege to be able to do both, to be honest. It's really a great honor to have that opportunity. You're awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk mainly today about a condition known as viral induced wheezing. And our paths crossed uh, some time ago because I had a son who, who experienced some viral induced wheezing and having three children, he, he being the youngest, I, we had not experienced that previously and can be a, a quite distressing time for both parents and children. So let's do a little bit of a deep dive in 
viral induced wheezing. Perhaps you could explain to us what is viral induced wheezing and how do parents typically first learn that their child may be suffering from the condition? Well, viral induced wheezing is a term that we use now, but there's been lots of terms over the last 30, 40 years. People have used the terms of wheezy bronchitis, infant or preschool bronchitis, preschool wheezing. Some people have called children who have viral induced wheezing name them as having asthma. It's incredibly common. So it's not unusual for a, a father like yourself to notice that their younger child has a, a propensity to wheeze. And the trigger for that wheezing is common colds or other viruses. And half of children um, have some experience of wheezing during the first few years of their life. So you ask me what it is. Actually, we have a very poor understanding of, of what it is but we know that children have been doing this for forever. So it's not a new, it's not new like food allergies we've seen over the last say 20 years, a dramatic increase in the number of children with moderate food, severe food allergies. This is not something, an epidemic that's on the rise. It's just a condition that we are what, more aware of now and, and doing some, I guess, more detailed research on. Yeah, I think we're certainly aware of it. I, I wouldn't say that it's on the rise. The thing is, it's incredibly common in the first place. If half of all children wheeze, and then many of those wheeze over and over again. And sometimes that's fine. They might have a bit of wheezing and they'd be unwell for a few days. But we do see kids that come to hospital with this problem. And in fact, it's the commonest reason to come to hospitals, the commonest reason to see a GP. So this is the biggest cause of morbidity actually in our country or worldwide in Western countries. It's a very big problem, and the problem is made worse by the fact that we actually don't really know how to treat it properly. We use asthma medications, and they can help, um, but they're not very good. And in some cases, some of the treatments don't work at all. So my experience was, as I mentioned, no three three boys, none of whom had had, had any symptoms of this, and my lad uh, contracted the uh, RSV virus. Uh, which I commonly call the CSV virus for some reason. Too much time on Excel spreadsheet. And he had been coughing in the evening and we thought it was just a standard cold cough and he would get over it. And he ended up in quite severe respiratory distress. And it was during COVID, so it was quite difficult to get in to see a doctor when you had a child who had some respiratory distress. And they took one look at him and he had the pulling of the lungs and the pulling of the trachea and, and the doctor said, look, straight to hospital for you. Your son's having some respiratory distress. And we went into the RCH and they put him, they, they first of all started him off on some Ventolin to see whether or not he responded. And then he ended up on some Redipred and we went on the sort of Ventolin every, I think it was every five minutes and then they expended it out. And then once he got to the point where I think he could go three or four hours without it, he was discharged from the hospital. But the discharge process was also quite alarming because we were discharged at four o'clock in the morning when he'd finally settled, but there, there was a need for beds. And really what we were told was, look, your son has asthma. Here's, a, here's an asthma action plan. Go and talk to your GP tomorrow. And, that's, and that was it. And what really what the journey from there was one of almost self-discovery and I'm in a fortunate position because I do work at a research institute and so I know respiratory physicians and I had the ability to ask them questions. 
what is the, for those kids who end up in hospital the first time, does that sound like a typical journey? What should parents be on the lookout for? Because I find wheezing is a difficult term and even after all this time, it feels to me a wheezing is something that could almost be, needs to be rebranded to help the average parent understand what that symptom is. I think that's a, a really good point. We'd be looking to people like you to help us rebrand it. All those conditions that you mentioned are actually different, but we don't know how they differ. Wheezy, wheezing that occurs with RSV is very common. That's a virus that affects the lower part of children's airways and the airways become inflamed. There's less gap for the air to travel through the airways. It causes a bit of obstruction. Those children get wheezing. Viral induced wheezing is in children that are slightly older, not usually with RSV, but with just other simple viruses like the common cold virus. And asthma is something completely different again, but all those children can wheeze. And so what we've made the mistake of doing in the past is just assuming that everyone who wheezes actually has asthma. And in fact, I think that's what's happened in your family. You've been given a diagnosis of asthma for your son, but it, we don't actually know that to be the case. What is wheezing? Wheezing is a noise. It's, a, it's something that we hear and it's caused by a narrowing of the airways or a change in the nature of the airway wall. We don't actually know which of those it is. So there needs to be a lot more study of early life wheezing because we think it could just be like a symptom. When you have a cough, it could be caused by lots of different things. And when you have wheezing, it can be caused by lots of different things. And we need to find ways in the future of identifying what those different things are because the treatments are going to be very different depending on what's causing the wheezing. And an example would be in preschool wheezing, viral-induced wheezing that we started this conversation about, some of those asthma treatments like the prednisolone don't actually work in an emergency setting. But we don't have any better treatments at the moment. So all around the world, children like your son will be given steroids in an emergency department, even when the evidence for them being effective is really weak. I think you may have mentioned to me that in some countries, they don't give steroids. They just do Ventolin until the child starts to exit respiratory distress. Is that correct? Yes, there are a few emergency departments that do that. But you can imagine you've you got to be quite brave in that situation because uh, some children are going to be quite slow to get better with the Ventolin. And we as physicians and most parents are really keen to do something. And so that's why the use of prednisolone continues in most EDs, there's really nothing much else that people can do. And in that situation, it's a relatively safe drug to try. And there always might be a few kids who do actually get better. But on average, it doesn't really help for bar-induced squeezing. The listeners a picture of when air enters our nose and goes down our lungs. Tell us about the different pipelines as it goes into the lungs, it gets all the way down into that final stage before it's absorbed or the oxygen is absorbed into the lung. And then tell us what is happening when children are experiencing this. Which part of that pathway is the inhalation and is it what is happening to cause the coughing or the wheezing? All right. Now you're speaking my language because you're moving into that respiratory physiology. The air goes up through the nose and into the airways. And the first airway is the windpipe or trachea. And then there are on average 23 branches off that first airway. 
So just to stop you there, we, let's think about the trachea, say garden hose for a nice way to think of diameter. I don't know, obviously it's not the size of a garden hose. And as you, as we progress down into the lungs, let's use that garden hose analogy to give people like me an idea of kind of what is happening. Okay. So you've got your garden hose instead of water, you've got air traveling through it. And then that garden hose branches into two and then it branches at each branch goes off into two again, and it does that through 23 generations of airways. Each getting smaller? Each getting much, much smaller as you go right to the periphery of the lung. And then what happens is the air as it travels through slows down until right at the end of those 23 branches, you have the alveoli, which is the little bubbles where the oxygen crosses into the bloodstream of the body. So the air slows right down, so it's ready to just cross over those alveoli into the bloodstream. And there are different problems that affect children. If you have problems with the alveoli, the bubbles, that's usually something like pneumonia. But in wheezing, or viral-induced wheezing, or RSV wheezing, or even asthma, the problem is in those airways. And usually with the small airways, closer to the end near the alveoli. So there's two things that can cause wheezing in those peripheral airways, those distant airways. One is if the airways become narrow in some way, or if the airways become very floppy. Both of those things block the waste gas being expired from the alveoli up through all those generations back to the mouth and nose to get out of the body. And waste gases being what, CO2 or? Yes, it's uh, well, it's still nitrogen and the other gases that don't go into the body, plus uh, CO2. The body gets rid of CO2 and it absorbs oxygen. Okay, when you say that they get floppy or that they narrow, is that the narrowing, is that caused by inflammation typically? It can be caused by things inside the airway. If a child aspirates a peanut down the airway, that can block off and narrow that airway and can cause wheezing as well. So it can be within the lumen. It can be within the airway wall and inflammation swells the airway wall. So that causes the narrowing. Or occasionally it can be something outside the airway, pressing on the airway and narrowing it that way. And for some children, this is not very common. Blood vessels and other bits of their heart can actually press on the airways and can result in wheezing as well. As I mentioned, Lots and lots of potential causes of wheezing in young children. And so if we think about a child that presents in hospital with viral induced wheezing, is it like most areas of medicine where you have to play the differential diagnosis and you're crossing one thing out or is it just about first instances, just ensuring that we can get the child breathing in a safe way? Uh, there's really probably not much you can do in hospital then I guess it's, it's putting them into the care of a pediatrician or a respiratory physician to try to identify uh, what is happening with this child. And I think this is where it gets difficult for parents. It's very hard, I think, for parents who aren't in the medical game to understand that some areas of medicine, we still just don't know anything. Yeah, that's always a, a tough thing, but not just for parents, for doctors as well. If, if all uh, doctors... Uh, retain their sort of sense of uncertainty about things, then there's a lot more curiosity and we potentially advance science a little bit faster. 
I don't think it's uh, just parents who experience that. But within an emergency setting, the priority is always safety first. We would always look to make sure that the airway is patent, that the child's breathing okay, and then that the, the blood circulation is flowing nicely. We say uh, look after ABC, airway breathing circulation. That's the priority. And when those things are working okay, you can breathe a, a sigh of relief and then start thinking through what the problems are actually are for that individual. And so on, um, when you're sent home from the hospital and this might be the first time a parent experiences hospitalization due to birthing problems, is it then really a case of there are things your physician will do to help you identify whether it was a one-off, whether it was caused by a RSV, whether it's possible asthma. What is the sort of diagnostic journey that a parent will undergo from that point onwards, typically in the next one to two years? The most important thing is that someone will take a, a history and the, the history is going to look to see whether or not this is a recurrent problem. Because I mentioned at the beginning, half the children do wheeze in the first few years of life. But if you're just going to do that once, it's not too big an issue. But if you're going to go on and have recurrent issues, then that's a problem. And so they'll be looking to see whether or not there's recurrence and probably won't get too stuck in until there are episodes that have occurred over and over again. So when there is recurrence, then the, we look into a family history of asthma. We're looking to identify what the triggers were, the, whether or not there are allergies, whether or not there's relationship to food, because some children who have anaphylaxis will wheeze as well. They'll be looking to see whether exercise has been a trigger. And these are all characteristics of asthma itself. In the acute situation, might do a swab to look for viruses and exclude RSV. And it's just important to take this comprehensive history. And it's also important to actually listen to the chest and, and confirm whether or not there is wheeze, because there are a few other noisy sounds that can manifest as wheezing. And parents uh, and doctors alike often confuse other noises with wheezing. An example would be um, stridor, which is like a croupy noise. That's a mm. noise you breathe in, whereas wheeze is predominantly a noise when you breathe out. I'm 50. My mm. mom used to be a nurse. She's in her mid-70s. They, that generation seems to be big on croup, and they use the term croup a lot, and you'll hear that if you've got a parent and a child with asthma or viral-induced wheezing. Mm. What is the difference between croup, you touched on it, and, and asthma or viral-induced wheezing? Croup, and this is to make it even more confusing, can also be virally induced. It's usually slightly different viruses, but it causes a inflammation, a, a obstruction in the very top of the airway. We mentioned the trachea before, the windpipe, that first bit of garden hose. And so just uh, physiologically, when you get some swelling in that top bit of the airway, it tends to affect you when you're breathing in and not when you're breathing out. And you get a noise called stridor which is a noise when you breathe in, whereas wheeze is a noise when you're breathing out. And the other thing you can get is a, a cough that sounds what we call as croupy. It often, you, you cough away and then you're taking a big gasp in. So it's, I don't think yeah, I've done that a very good. Well, but uh, what, is, what is causing that cough? Because that is pretty common. And if you've had a child who is experiencing, in my experience, just wheezing. It's the cough that you find hard to get under control and it seems to exacerbate until 
you either get it under control or you have to go and seek some external help for it. Yeah, it's the inflammation of the uh, upper airways that irritates the airways and causes cough. Do you see a lot more kids coming into hospital in pollen season between September and January who may be first timers and and their symptoms are being caused by the environmental conditions such as pollen? Often kids with asthma uh, are triggered during that season. And there's a sort of link between asthma and what we call atopy or the allergies like hay fever. And so when the plane tree season uh, occurs and and the trees are shedding their pollen, that does seem to be a trigger for quite a few children. But probably the biggest time of year is still during the winter months when there are lots of viruses going around and kids are a bit huddled in indoors closer to together. So there's more transmission of those viruses as well. So there are different peaks during the different parts of the year. So definitely a, a, a hay, hay fever season peak, uh, but also that sort of winter viruses peak as well. Is there such a thing as a clear diagnosis of asthma in a child, say, under five? Or is, it, is there an uncanny valley in these kids where you just got to wait and see until they get to seven or eight or nine to determine exactly what is going on? There's no test to say that someone has asthma. And under five, there's no lung function test either to help guide you. So it's all done on the history, the story that the family tell you. And I'd be comfortable making a diagnosis of asthma in a child who has recurrent wheezing, who has that wheezing in relation to some of the common triggers of asthma. So the exercise. Yes. Those things I mentioned before. Yeah. So I, I'd be happy. At, but as part of that, I, I would like to see that they had a, a genuinely positive response to some of the treatments as well. So in that circumstances, I'll be pretty confident about the diagnosis. And those treatments being what predominantly Ventolin? Response to Ventolin and also the ability for the inhaled steroid puffers to actually prevent some of the symptoms as well. So we're talking about preventers there, the orange puffers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this, is there good evidence to show that for a lot of kids that those preventers will help mitigate instances or recurrences through those winter periods? Yeah, lots of good evidence. Lots of good evidence that will improve the symptoms of asthma, but they're not very good actually at preventing the response to viruses, the wheezing response to viruses. Children with asthma also get uh, wheezing with viruses as well. And there isn't really a good treatment that can prevent that wheezing with a virus. And are there, I'm sure that lots of parents like me talk to their doctors and still can't resist the temptation to do a bit of doctor Googling. Mm. I will admit to seeing some stuff out there around vitamin D and vitamin D levels. What do you see anything on the horizon that's piqued your interest or tell us about some of the research that you're looking to conduct in this area? There haven't been an enormous number of studies. And part of this is that the big drug companies have focused a lot on the other end of life, looking at chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is a, an obstructive airway condition where you can wheeze as well, but in older people. So they've been focusing there. I presume as we're all aging, there's a bit, bit of a bigger market there. And there's not been much of a focus at the under five end of the, the spectrum. So we do have a a research program where we're hoping to start studying all sorts of different medications in the context of trying to prevent the recurrent wheezing in preschool children. 
There's only one study in recent times that suggests that there's a treatment that we could use in the emergency setting. And that was a study that looked at a drug called azithromycin, which is a weird one because azithromycin is actually an antibiotic. But over the last decade or so, we've identified that this antibiotic actually also works as an anti-inflammatory drug. So there are a number of conditions where azithromycin is shown to have some benefit. And in preschool wheezing children, it does seem to have some benefit. But this sort of suggests that there's an inflammation process going on that we need to know a lot more about. And that's one of the areas of our own research focus. So what we're hoping to do over the next few years is look at the inflammation in children that have viral-induced wheezing, look at the nature of the inflammation cells, and see what treatments that we already have available that we could start using to target younger children. And would there have been studies looking at things like vitamin D levels in kids who have it? I'm, and I'm picking vitamin D as a, as a particular biomarker, if you will, but is that part of the study process of looking at all the biomarkers of the kids, what's happening in their blood and levels are different? What's the word I'm looking for there? What's right. the different what? <laughs> Our own research has got a, a, a big variety of program and, and one I've described there, which is looking at the inflammation when children are actually suffering viral induced wheezing. But another aspect of our research is looking at large cohorts of children. There have been studies in the past that where you know, lots of participants from around uh, Victoria and to look at some of those things that were information that was collected, like their vitamin D levels and see which children actually go on to get wheezing later on in life. Some of that work's already been done and it hasn't so far led to any new treatments, but what we'd really love to be able to do is find a biomarker of which children are going to get the problem with viral induced wheezing and then intervene with new treatments to actually prevent it completely. Yeah. And one of the important aspects of that is if you get recurrent wheezing and you measure children's lung function when they get to seven or eight years of age, the children with recurrent wheezing, their lung function is a little bit lower than the other children. So it looks as if it might be a very important signal of what's happening with that developing lung. You remember I mentioned developing lung early on. So that's why this period of life is really important to study. And you may wonder why we haven't done that so far. It's just very hard. The under fives, it was called the silent period. And that was because it's very hard to study the lungs. You can't look in the lungs very easily. You don't really want to be doing all sorts of imaging that might require a bit of radiation, etc. So it's been really tricky to, to study. And I'm assuming those little sacs that you mentioned earlier where the oxygen does go across into the bloodstream, we're talking about the size of, in the microns down at that level? Yeah, the, the gap between the alveolus and the blood vessel is one micron. So you've got it about right when you're talking about microns. The alveolus is just a few microns across. It's pretty difficult to look at that level with any existing technology. It's coming. It's coming. Right. Okay, well, just a couple of questions to wrap up. Kids who have classic viral, it sounds like we can't really say this is classic viral induced wheezing, but what is the prognosis for children who you would see in your clinic, who you would say, I'm confident this child does not have traditional asthma. It's not triggered by environmental conditions or exercise or a particular allergen like cat hair. 
or dander, I think they call it. For those children who have viral induced wheezing, what is the prognosis for growing out of it? And then you mentioned this potential for limited lung function in older life. Do we know enough to say whether or which children may, may experience that later in life? Our information from this comes from a study that actually started in Melbourne in the 1950s, where uh, children had lung function measured and they were followed up until their fifties and sixties. And so what that study showed was the more symptoms you had early on. So the more wheezing in relation to um, infections with viruses that you had in the first years of your childhood, the more symptoms you had when you were an adult in your fifties and sixties. Now you had a big window in between where you might not have any symptoms at all because half of children will stop having this wheezing problem when they're about six years of age. Half of them would just grow out of that. But if you have a lot of symptoms early on, it's more likely that you're going to have a lot of symptoms in your fifties and sixties. And if you have lower lung function early on, you keep that position for the rest of your life. So you have lower lung function when you're an adult. And that's important because lower lung function when you're an adult actually has impacts on your cardiovascular health, your respiratory health. It also uh, tells you how healthy and active you're going to be as, a, a, as an aging citizen as well. It's really important this viral induced wheezing. If it's a reflection of your lung growth, that we are aware of that early on in life and can change that trajectory. We don't know how to change that trajectory just yet, but that's what some of our research is, is going to be focused on in the future. And so if you've had a child who's had some viral induced wheezing or some asthma that they may have seemingly grown out of, in their teens, would you suggest it's worthwhile getting their lung function tested to see whether or not they do have potentially a compromised pulmonary system? We've never recommended that before, and but we do propose, we are planning at the moment a research study where we do detect or look at lung function in some children when in their teens to find out if there are some treatments that might change that trajectory. The problem is, you asked before, which of the children that are going to get this problem? We can't predict it just yet. We can't do that. But the reason why this might be very important in the future is because we're all aging and we want a, a better aging and the interventions might not be things that we do to people in their fifties and sixties. It might be, it has to be things that are in, that we do early on in life. So what you're suggesting might be the future. We're not there yet. Yeah. I've got two last questions. I promise you've been very generous with your time. So thank you. I think in being at barbecues where you bring up that your child's experienced viral induced wheezing, it is not uncommon to find if you're in a group of say 10 or that there are multiple parents who also experience that. And what I've found is that in the parenting dynamic, there is always one parent who is well, Fred and Silver, I always get that wrong, works well and we should continue to use it. And the other parent is it's a steroid and we shouldn't be giving it to them like that unless they absolutely have. What do we know about the long-term implications of a child who may require that type of steroid for a period of time, let's call it two or three years, including the preventer? Mm -hmm. What impacts can that have on their growth long term? Do we know anything about that? There are side effects of every treatment that we use, and most physicians will try and limit the, the exposure to those drugs and the side effects. 
In terms of the inhaled preventers, the inhaled corticosteroids, the main side effects are it can cause a bit of thrush in the mouth. So we usually advise people to have a drink or a, a gargle after they've taken those medications. And it can have a very tiny effect on the child's growth. Not a detectable one if you were just measuring with a tape measure, but enough in research studies to suggest it's impacting slightly on, on height. In terms of prednisolone, the similarly, the same sort of a side effects with oral prednisolone, but it, if you have lots of courses, it can also impact on the density of your bones, the strength of your bones as well. It's not a drug that we use very lightly. We would prefer to only use it when there's a definite benefit of using the medication. And clear that one up. And there may be some parents out there who are now a little concerned because they feel that their child may be experiencing some wheezing, but they may not have been in respiratory distress and needed to go to the hospital. So as a clinician, what is your advice we're not giving medical advice, but what is your advice to parents if they do feel or, or have seen their child display some of the symptoms we've talked about today, what is the best course of action? The most important thing is to know that you wouldn't be alone. It's very common. And uh, if you do think that your child's wheezing, it's important to observe just how much that's troubling them, because if it's not really bothering them too much it's unlikely that your GP or another doctor are going to prescribe a lot of medication. So the medications that we've been talking about are really there to control the symptoms and try and improve your child's quality of life or day-to-day -day existence and, and exercise tolerance. If they're not experiencing problems there, they don't really need a lot of medication. But if they are, if it's affecting their uh, PE or uh, sports at school, there are things that can be done. And that would be an appropriate time to, to take them along to see, to see your general practitioner. Great. And is there anything else that you would like to raise in the other uh, discussion points for the potential audience out there? Only that the sort of vision that we have is if we get stuck in and find ways of improving young children's response to viruses and prevent wheezing and improve their lung function early on in life. We're hoping that will improve an individual's life you know, right through their aging in their seventh and eighth, ninth decade. Um, but also, um, if we could do that here through research in Australia, um, it would produce a, a whole uh, nation of super healthy respiratory athletes that we hope would enhance our success on the sporting field and in life everywhere. So long uh, live Australia in that regard. Is there, a, is there a way that people uh, can contribute to your research? Is that typical where you have private donors who may have experienced this and they're particularly passionate about it and they could reach out to you to make a contribution to your research? Yeah, not to me or to our research teams, but there are a number of places which would certainly take your listeners through that to contact the research institutes around the, the city. They're very happy to chat more about this and uh, also channel that funding towards the appropriate research. I think it's probably not beholden on me to suggest that your listeners target my own research, but certainly I think this is an important area and it's important for the country as a whole. The other area where they may be able to help is that often the, the focus of national funding for research 
it is influenced by what the public sees as important. We have national funding bodies such as the National Health and Medical Research Council. If they were to recognize the importance of this particular area of research, then I think that most uh, successful or competent researchers would be able to access that funding, uh, the national funding. Okay, maybe you and I could put together a little list of mm. the possible state-based mm. research institutes that people could reach out and contact if that was something they wanted to. Yeah, I could just say, yeah, give it to MCRI. And, uh, but I think, yeah, I feel uncomfortable doing that. I'm ha very happy to do that, Sam, because there are people on the other side of the river as well who are interested in this area. Okay, Sarath. Lovely to talk to you. We wish you well in your research and hopefully you can, you can resolve the future parents' worries and concerns when it comes to viral induced wheezing. And yeah, let's, let's get our heads together at some point and think about rebranding the term wheezing into something that not just clinicians can pick, but parents can pick as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for your really wonderful questions and challenging sometimes, mainly because we don't have the answers. I certainly don't, but okay. thanks for your time. Lovely to speak.